and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I'm not only the Executive Director of Healthcare Voices, but I'm also a cancer survivor, and so I've had uh, firsthand experience with the uh, healthcare system in America. And we are here to answer your questions uh, and give you the resources and knowledge you need to navigate healthcare in America. So please call or text in your questions, and we will answer them in a future episode. Uh, let's start with some questions from our audience. Uh, the first one is from LaVon. Uh, I had to drop my uh, Affordable Care Act health insurance because Blue Cross of Florida has no benefits attached, only a name to pay a monthly premium. I shopped around for prescriptions and are now paying less than on the Blue, Care, uh, Blue Cross Blue, Blue Shield plan. I don't have health insurance right now, but can get cheaper med- medications. Uh, and so... Alika from Health Sherpa, can you uh, talk a little bit about what marketplace plans cover uh, and uh, how you can get uh, better coverage uh, for health insurance? Absolutely. So taking that first part of that question uh, up top, um, there are a if you're enrolling in what's called a, an ACA marketplace plan or a qualified health plan, um, these plans are required to meet pretty strict standards on what they have to cover. Um, so every ACA plan is going to cover pre-existing condition protections. It's going to offer free preventive care. It's going to offer essential health benefits like hospitalization and certainly prescription drug coverage. So if your plan doesn't offer some of those benefits, it is worth checking to make sure that you are actually enrolled in an affordable care plan and not a plan that doesn't have to meet those strict standards. Um, so that's the first thing. So if you want to make sure you're enrolling in an ACA plan, um, a good idea is to go to healthcare.gov, your state exchange, or work with a certified partner like HealthSherpa that is going to show those qualified health plan options. Um, this person also mentioned uh, that they had been shopping around and found prescription drugs for a lower price than uh, what they paid for when they had insurance. Um, there are lots of prescription drug coupons, manufacturer assistance programs out there through websites like GoodRx you may have heard of. And those can be a really good way to save money on prescriptions. Uh, One caveat there, though, is that if you do have health insurance, uh, you cannot generally use those coupons alongside your health. So any money you spend on prescriptions using those coupons, that doesn't get applied to your deductible. So really important to make those, uh, really consider those trade-offs when you're, if you're going to be using some of those prescription drug programs. Um, Lastly, Uh, It's been a little while. Uh, If it's been a little while since you checked whether you qualify, uh, what you qualify for in the ACA marketplace, go back and check again. Uh, Last year, the American Rescue Plan dramatically expanded subsidies available for folks on the health insurance marketplace. So if you've shopped before and the options didn't seem affordable to you, go back, check again. Um, Just to give you a sense, HealthSherpa last year, we enrolled about 3 million people. Most of them paid less than $25 a month. So Really important to go back, take five minutes, see what you Thanks. And our next question is from Marlene. Uh, do Social Security recipients qualify for dental implants instead of dentures? Uh, Diane from Just Care and Social Security Works. Hi there. Yes, um, great question. And unfortunately, as of now, Medicare doesn't cover any kind of dental care. 
but there are some free programs out there that could help you with those costs. So we're adding them and they're actually included on the Care Talk website page at act.tv forward slash care talk at the very bottom of the page. But if you, I'm just going to name a few of them. One is you might um, see if Medicaid covers dental care in your state and you might qualify through, for dental care um, via Medicaid. Another way is through the Program for All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly, which is a program that's pretty wonderful that's part of Medicare when it's administered through nonprofits. And they cover comprehensive healthcare services. So if you were to qualify for one of those programs, you also might be able to get um, your dental care covered. Finally, there's a federally qualified health center in almost every region of the country, 10, more than 10,000 of them. And they sometimes will cover uh, your dental care, maybe not for free, but at low cost. And one more idea, which is um, if there is a dental school in your area, contact them and see if maybe they can provide you with the dental services you need. Sometimes they'll offer free or low cost dental services. So I hope one of those um, options works for you because I know how costly this can be. Actually, one final idea I've been reading, I think it was Kaiser Health News published a story about people going to Mexico to get their dental care covered because it's low cost and high quality in many instances. So if you're game to take a trip, to Mexico, you might be able to do very well over there. Thanks, Diane. Uh, our next question is about health insurance. Betty wants to know, what is a silver plan? Alika? Great question. So on the health insurance marketplace, plans come in a few different categories. The most common are bronze, silver, and gold. Um, and that those designations really refer to how much um, of an average person's costs that plan will cover. Um, to make it simple, bronze plans generally have the lowest price, but the highest cost when you actually use your coverage. So you might on the ACA marketplace, if you're qualified for financial assistance, see bronze plans that are free, but might have a deductible of around eight, $9,000. Mm. Um, on the flip side, gold plans generally have the highest um, premiums, uh, but the lowest cost sharing when you actually use your plan. So silver generally is sometimes in the middle with one really important. If you make below certain income uh, thresholds, you can actually qualify for an extra kind of subsidy called a cost sharing reduction. And those really bring down the costs of when you actually use your plan. So your deductible is going to be a lot lower. Your out-of-pocket maximum is going to be a lot lower. Your co-pays are going to be a lot lower. Um, so if you qualify for one of those cost sharing reductions, the catch is you can only use it if you enroll in a silver tier. So if you qualify for one of those nine times out of 10, it makes sense for you to pick silver. Um, otherwise, if maybe you're not qualifying for those extra savings, um, it's really a question when you're looking at those different plan tiers of, uh, you know, what makes most sense for your health needs. That's why when you go to shop on the marketplace, really important to make a list of everything you need covered, what your routine medical needs are, your prescriptions you need covered. Uh, and then you can go and really look and say, of these plans, um, which one is going to uh, be the cheapest for me over the course of the year. Thanks. And how do you know if you qualify for the extra help for a silver plan? Great question. If you go to healthcare.gov or a partner like HealthSherpa, we will tell you when you put in a, a little bit of information. Um, generally, the um, Limit to qualify for a cost sharing reduction is um, 
uh, trying to do some quick math here, but um, about $30,000 for an individual um, and a little bit higher for, for families. Um, it's important to note that the lower your income within that range, the better the cost sharing reduction is as well. So some of your decision making might vary depending on exactly what you qualify for. But again, only takes five minutes to check. Always worth uh, going and having a look. Thanks. Uh, our next question is from Stephanie. Um, they want to know, is the new Alzheimer's drug that's been talked about a lot in the news, is it covered under Medicare Part B or Part D, or is it covered at all? Diane? Really interesting question. Yes. So the answer is, as of now, um, you can sometimes have your drugs covered under Medicare Part B and sometimes under Medicare Part D. The difference is that Part D covers your drugs at the pharmacy and Part B covers your drugs that are administered at a hospital or by a doctor directly. That's the general difference anyway. And so this drug, Aduhelm, is, um, I believe the drug you're talking about, uh, is administered by a doctor. So that would be covered under Part B. Medicare has taken a position that has yet to be finalized that it will only cover this drug in the most limited of circumstances. So I don't think you should assume that it will be covered, but the final determination has not yet been released and we shall see um, once it is released what CMS decides, the Med Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services decides to do. But assume it's gonna be a very narrow coverage. Okay, uh, so people should uh, just keep following that and hopefully there will be future advances uh, including uh, medication for Alzheimer's that's affected. That's so a really good point, Laura, because I think part of the issue with Medicare not covering this drug in every instance is that there are some serious side effects. People have had brain bleeding and other really, really um, terrible um, side effects from the drug. And so right now, I think there's so many risks attached to it that um, CMS is deciding that maybe it shouldn't be covered except in the most exceptional circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I think the preliminary science uh, was is sort of um, mixed results of whether it even has an effect. So mm -hmm. Uh, pay attention, stay tuned, and we'll let you know as things change. And now I'm delighted to introduce our special guest, Natasha Murphy from the Center for American Progress, who's going to talk about the upcoming Medicaid unwinding when the public health emergency ends, uh, what to do if you have a health insurance through Medicaid and you might be losing it. So uh, she'll explain more what this all means and what you can do. Great. Thank you so much, Laura. Excited to be here with you today to chat more about the upcoming conclusion of the national public health emergency, the Medicaid unwinding, and what consumers can do if they are at risk of losing their Medicaid coverage. And so just for a little bit of background, wanted to share that back in January 2020, the federal government enacted a national public health emergency in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And it was this this emergency declaration that provided the key authority for both federal and state governments to enact key interventions to respond to the pandemic. So it enabled them to enact regulatory flexibilities that allowed consumers to access telehealth and to get care virtually when they weren't able to see their doctors in person. And it also provided access to key um, low cost or free COVID-19 testing, treatment and care. But no most notably, it provided a protection for millions of Americans to ensure that 
that their coverage was not interrupted during the unprecedented health and economic crisis that has been the COVID-19 pandemic. So that first took place in January 2020, but a few months later in March of 2020, Congress enacted the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And that piece of legislation tied several really important provisions to the National Public Health Emergency Timeline, one of which was um, a Medicaid continuous coverage requirement. And so Medicaid, which is the federally funded but state-run health insurance program for individuals who are low income, um, certain elderly individuals, those with disabilities, as well as some pregnant mothers, um, is a critical lifeline for millions of Americans. And in that Families First Coronavirus Response Act, in exchange for additional federal funds to support the Medicaid program, states agreed not to terminate anyone's Medicaid coverage until the end of the month in which the quarter of the public health emergencies conclusion. And so since pretty much March of 2020, Medicaid enrollment has experienced unprecedented growth. So from February 2020 through September 2021, there was an increase of 13.6 million individuals. However, um, with increased calls for the country to return to a state of normalcy, as we've seen a lot of governments, um, both locally and even nationally, have um, walked back a lot of their um, pandemic mitigation measures, there is an expectation that the national public health emergency will be coming to an end. And with that, for the first time in over two years, state Medicaid agencies will actually be going through their enrollees and resuming um, eligibility determinations. And with that, there's concern that we have millions of Americans who might actually lose their Medicaid coverage. And so recently, the Urban Institute actually estimated that there are up to 14.4 million Americans could be deemed ineligible for Medicaid in the 14 months following the conclusion of the public health emergency, if that happens in the second quarter of 2022, which um, all eyes seem to point to that being the termination date of that PHE. And so as we prepare for the unwinding of Medicaid continuous coverage to ensure that folks are able to preserve their health insurance and their access to quality, affordable care, there are a few steps that individual consumers can make. Um, and the first one, which I find incredibly important, it is going to be really critical that Medicaid enrollees ensure that their state Medicaid agency has the most up-to-date, accurate contact information for them. And so during the um, eligibility and enrollment process, state Medicaid agencies will be reaching out to current enrollees um, with information about their current plans, letting them know that redetermination will be um, beginning soon. So it is really, really important that the state Medicaid agency has your accurate home address, telephone number, as well as email information. So ensuring that they have this contact information will ensure that you get the information you need to ensure that you're able to provide any supporting documentation and re-enroll in subsequent Medicaid coverage if you're deemed eligible. And if not, 
they have their contact information to contact you if you aren't eligible. Um, also, it's really going to be incredibly important because so many people have moved during the pandemic as a result of, you know, economic changes, you know, having to possibly move back home to care for parents. There's been a lot of just locational shift. And so it's important for consumers, you know, to even proactively reach out to their Medicaid agencies to ensure that that contact information is up to date. Um, I would also recommend that folks pay particular attention to, you know, any mail that is coming from their Department of Human Services or, you know, whatever the state Medicaid agency is where they're located to ensure that they're up to date with, you know, whatever information that the agency is sending out. So that's, you know, really kind of the primary area that folks and actions that individuals can take at this point in time as we await for the final decision around the public health emergency's conclusion, but ensures that they will be able to at least be aware of any potential changes in their coverage ahead of time so that they can make, you know, the best determination for themselves and their families. Well, Great. Back over to you, Laura. Thanks. So uh, the issue is that people may have got on Medicaid because they lost their job or their family circumstances in the last couple of years. Uh, but uh, whether they are still eligible for Medicaid or not, Medicaid hasn't been checking to make sure that they're still eligible. Mm-hmm. And so that's now going to happen. Yes. So uh, they'll, they'll ask you your proof of income or, or what does that look like? Sure. So um, states have varying requirements as it relates to verifying key information. But yes, generally, they will be asking for individuals to provide proof of income to ensure that, you know, they meet the eligibility requirements um, for the state. And so it'll be important for folks to, you know, have tax information or, you know, W-2s on hand or at least easily accessible so that they can provide that information back to the Medicaid agency in a timely manner and fashion to ensure that their redetermination isn't held up and, you know, they can maintain coverage if they are in fact So what happens if you're not eligible anymore? Maybe you lost your job and so you got health insurance through Medicaid, but you got a new job. Uh, So what do you do if you don't qualify for Medicaid anymore? Sure. If um, you don't qualify for Medicaid, there are a couple of different avenues that you can take. Based on your income, um, if it happens to have bumped up ahead of the Medicaid threshold for your particular particular, uh, jurisdiction, you do have an opportunity to enroll in Affordable Care Act coverage. And so based on where you are, you can visit healthcare.gov or your state state state-based marketplace to um, review and select a ACA plan or a qualified health plan that best suits your needs. And at least for the remainder of this year, um, there is a special enrollment period for folks who are losing um, Medicaid coverage to ensure that, you know, they have a 60 day window to go ahead and um, select new coverage to ensure that, you know, they're able to access care. Mm -hmm. And Diane has a question for you, Diane. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about spending down to Medicaid at this, at this juncture, can you spend down in any situation? And, and I I believe if your, your healthcare costs exceed um, the amount of income, then you can deduct them. Anyway, over to you. 
Sure. Great question, Diane. And actually, I think it might be a little bit out of <laughs> out of my wheelhouse. Um, but I do think that that is, you know, a possibility for folks, you know, if they aren't, you know, if they are a little bit over the uh, Medicaid threshold, they may be able to spend down to kind of get to to that particular um income amount to, to maintain their eligibility. Mm-hmm. And Alica, can you speak a little bit more about the special uh, enrollment period? Yeah, absolutely. So certainly if you lose any kind of health coverage, whether that's through Medicaid, through a job, um, other sources, um, you will get that 60-day special enrollment period in that case. However, um, in all of healthcare.gov, every state that uses healthcare.gov and many states that run their own marketplaces, um, there has been a new special enrollment period added um, for people who make less than um, about $20,000 a year as an individual. And again, so we anticipate that many of the people who are losing Medicaid might still be within that threshold. And even if you lose Medicaid and, you know, maybe you moved, you can see that paperwork, um, you'd still be able to enroll later in the year as well through that special. Great. And Natasha, can you speak a little bit about what uh, Oregon is experimenting with, uh, with uh, the bridge plan and how uh, other states maybe could could take a look? Yeah, absolutely. So in preparation for the unwinding, um, there's been quite a bit of state activity, um, so really some state innovation to try and anticipate um, some of these coverage losses and identify solutions to ensure that they don't happen. And Oregon is one of those uh, jurisdictions. Um, Their legislature has recently passed a bill that allows the state to create a bridge plan, which is really designed to capture those individuals who are deemed no longer eligible for Medicaid and enrolling them in, you know, an ACA similar plan uh, to provide pretty much a coverage safety net um, to ensure that they maintain coverage, you know, after they're deemed ineligible and are automatically transitioned into um, additional coverage to just ease that overall transition for them. And so this is a um, policy proposal that a lot of states are going to be paying very close attention to, you know, as an innovative way to maintain coverage for their potential um, Medicaid disenrollees. And so, you know, here at the Center for American Progress, we're absolutely going to be monitoring the Oregon Bridge Plan pretty closely and to see, you know, the impact that it's going to have on folks in that state. Absolutely. Because we don't have universal care in this country. We have a bunch of different systems like Medicare, like Medicaid, like the Affordable Care Act, like TRICARE for veterans. Uh, There are all these different pieces, but there are a lot of people that fell through the cracks. And through this pandemic, millions of those people have been able to access health insurance, maybe for the first time through Medicaid, but they could fall through the cracks again. So what do you think that, uh, Natasha, do you think that uh, any state is really ready for this? In the next few months, they're going to determine what happens to the health insurance of millions of Americans. Yes. So um, I think the latest number I've seen is in the next 14 months, nationwide states will actually be processing over 77 million applications to redetermine enrollees eligibility. And so that is an incredible um, process operationally and administratively that they're going to have to go through. And 
so as they prepare for this kind of Herculean undertaking, I know there has been a lot of concerted effort to um, actively and proactively reach out to some of the key partners that operate in this space. Um, so notably, um, partnering very closely with the state-based marketplaces and the 18 states that um, did elect to create their own exchanges, leveraging some of their expertise as it relates to consumer outreach and enrollee communication, just helping to get the word out that uh, Medicaid uh, redetermination will be happening um, at some point during this year. In addition, partnering with the managed care plans who oftentimes, you know, are the first line of defense and have kind of the latest and greatest contact information for a lot of their enrollees. So I will say that it's my understanding that states are, you know, taking the effort and the time to ensure that they are as prepared as possible as they embark on redetermining, you know, millions of people who have been on the Medicaid roll since February. And I would expect that some states will just be better at this than others. You know, st some states prioritize Medicaid and health insurance for their people more than others. So probably this being a 50 state system, each state is going to do it a little differently and some are going to be better than worse. Yes. And states that um, historically or previously had um, uh, dual eligibility systems. So they already have the infrastructure in place to transfer data between the Medicaid agency and, you know, say, for example, the state based exchange. They definitely have a leg up um, on other jurisdictions who maintain separate systems. And so I think a lot of those earlier investments are going to pay off tremendously over the next 14 months. Or so so I, I think you mentioned earlier, uh, if somebody is on Medicaid and they're not sure if they're eligible or not, they should probably start by making sure that the Medicaid office has their current address and phone number and email address. Absolutely. Yes. Just, you know, giving a call to the Medicaid agency and letting them know, hey, I may have moved during the pandemic or can you just confirm what information do you have on file for me? Because it's going to be incredibly, it'll be critically important that folks be on the lookout for any written correspondence or even um, electronic correspondence from their state Medicaid agencies to ensure that they're up to date on, you know, the redetermination activity that's taking place. Mm -hmm. And what does this timeline look like again? We, we don't know when the pandemic emergency will be declared over and when does redetermination happen after that? Yes. So that is one of the biggest areas of uncertainty. Currently, the public health emergency is actually slated to end in the middle of April. However, the Biden administration did commit to providing state Medicaid agencies with at least 90 days notice ahead of the end of the PHE. And so since we're well within that 90 day notification timeline, there is an expectation that come the middle of April, the administration will renew the public health emergency at least one more time which would take us until July of 2022, at which point the emergency would conclude and states would actually have a total of 14 months to begin the redetermination process. So we would be, you know, kind of encountering mass redeterminations well into 2020. Okay. And then it's up to the states how long or how quickly they, you know, if they wanted to rush through this, if the, if for state budget reasons or whatever, that they did not prioritize keeping people on their health insurance, they could go through this quick and they could be throwing people off as soon as it's over. 
It is a concern that states um, will be under immense budgetary pressure to try and process applications as quickly as possible since, unfortunately, that enhanced federal funding for the additional uh, Medicaid enrollees will actually terminate upon conclusion. of, And so it's absolutely um, a concern that states might be disenrolling folks as quickly as possible, just trying to, you know, maintain this or limit the budgetary impacts. But in their latest uh, guidance, CMS did indicate that they will be tracking very, very closely the um, any type of patterns in the data that shows you know, massive spikes in disenrollment um, across the country. So it's exciting and you know helpful to know that there is going to be a certain level of federal oversight as states prepare to redetermine um, their Medicaid. Absolutely. But I'm especially concerned about people in the states that haven't expanded Medicaid, uh, that there won't be good fallbacks for people below a certain income level. Alika, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, happy, um, happy to speak to that a little bit. I mean, certainly we we have states where, um, for example, you have um, situations where folks may have qualified for Medicaid, for example, because they were pregnant or they were in a low-income family, and the limits for that are quite a bit lower than for general expansion Medicaid. Um, so certainly there are you know, situations where uh, people might have qualified for Medicaid, their income really hasn't changed, but their life circumstances have, and they might not make enough to qualify for a, a qualified. Um, certainly, you know, there are, um, it, it is really important for folks to know that Medicaid is based on your income this month whereas marketplace uh, plans are based on your income for the entire year. So if someone comes in and they say, well, I don't have income this month, but you know, I think for 2023 as a whole, I'm going to make more than $13,000, they could still be eligible to enroll in a qualified health plan. Um, I think it's also really important to note that Medicaid and qualified health plans are two different kinds of coverage. Um, Medicaid often does not, um, or usually does not have premiums, um, may have very low co-pays, Whereas on the marketplace, again, many of the folks in this situation are going to qualify for really, really low cost coverage. Many will qualify for free coverage, in fact, um, with low deductibles and, and low co-pays. But there still is, you know, some education that needs to be done around, hey, make sure you set up your auto pay. Make sure you're, you know, paying those premiums every month or you may get dropped from that coverage. So there's certainly that educational component as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to our show. Uh, please keep asking your questions, and we will get you answers in our next Care Talks. Thank you. Thank you.